Protecting students and teachers when they step into school is priority number one. On School Safety Today, a podcast from Raptor Technologies, we'll bring you the technologies and leadership that protects over 35,000 schools across the United States. All right, welcome to another episode of School Safety Today. I am your host, Bobby Brill, and joining us today is Molly Hudgens, who is a school counselor with over 23 years of education experience and the author of the book, Saving Sycamore, the school shooting that never happened. And I think that's something that we're going to be talking a lot about today as, as something aspirational. Uh, Molly, please give us a little bit of your background and uh, tell us what led you to write this book. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited to be here with you all. Um, I'm actually a school counselor, as you mentioned, at Sycamore Middle School, which is in Pleasant View, Tennessee, about 30 minutes west of Nashville. I started here right out of college at the ripe old age of 21, uh, where I was a classroom teacher with seventh and eighth grade English for about eight years before transitioning to the counseling departments. And that is still the role that I, I currently play as a school counselor here, mostly working with our seventh and eighth graders. Um, and in 2016, I was in my office here where you see me seated today one morning when an eighth grader armed with a fully loaded um, handgun came to me in the counseling department. And he told me that um, he had a plan to harm students on our campus and staff and he, that he came to me because he thought I was the only person who could talk him out of it. Uh, it took me about 90 minutes to do that. And ultimately, I prayed with him, holding his hand mm. and kneeling beside him on the on the floor beside him. And he gave me the gun. Um, that situation changed my life, as you can imagine. Uh, six yeah, months later, um, I became the first Tennessean to be the recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor, Citizens Honor. And uh, that has given me opportunities to talk about character development, to talk about my faith, and to obviously talk about school safety, which has been a great passion of mine for really the last 23 years. So um, I have had a very blessed life thus far, and it continues to be so, especially having opportunities like this uh, to speak and, and share our story. Uh, that that is uh, is humbling and amazing and scary and mm -hmm. oh my gosh you know if i could reach across and give you a hug as a thank you th this is this is this is something that is the outcome we want to hear all the time forever and a day and uh, even the most cynical person like i don't care how she did it mm -hmm. it stopped that's right. all that we care about. I'm a parent. And, you know, before people have kids, they they scroll past some of this news and go, well, you know, it's I, I don't have a kid. I don't have to worry about it. It's bad. Mm -hmm. And the finger pointing begins and we move on. But as a parent, you know, this is the most important issue we deal with daily. Certainly. Before we, yeah. And, and before we get into the book, I, I want to ask you just quickly. Um, what led you into counseling? Because that's that's a big shift from educating to wanting to actually help people. And if you're dealing with seventh and eighth graders, that's when the kids are the, the most um, rambunctious. Right. Well, you might say it was a fluke or an act of nature. Uh, my senior year in college, a tornado came through our town and totaled almost all of our cars. And my parents said, why don't you take the money and go to graduate school? And I was planning to be a high school English teacher. So I remember thinking, what am I going to get a master's in? Well, simultaneously, I was taking a class called Marriage and Family as an elective. Uh, my roommate had suggested it because she thought it would be an easy A. And 
And the professor for that class was a marriage and family therapist. And one day in class, she assigned us an activity where one of us had to play the role of the client and one had to play the role of the counselor. And uh, then we had to reverse and act out these scenarios she had prepared. And so at the end of class that day, she asked me to stay behind. And she said, Molly, have you ever thought about being a, a, a therapist? And mm. I said, I don't know. I've never been to one. What do they do? And so she encouraged me to do that. So I decided to uh, to take the GRE and start a master's program at Western Kentucky University where I was a where I received my bachelor's degree. And about two classes into that, I had been hired here at Sycamore and I was taking, I believe it was adolescent psychology and our professor was head of the school counseling department. And he mm. one day came to me and said, you know, hey, Molly, don't you work in a school? And I said, well, yes, sir. And he said, well, have you ever considered being a school counselor? And I said, well, the school I attended didn't have one. I don't even know what they do. And so mm, he laughed right. and told me, I really think this might be the direction you're headed in. So like I said before, I taught for eight years and then there was an opening in the counseling department and it just felt like it might be um, the right time for a transition. And it most certainly was. Well, you said something there that, it, and I, I, you know, that's, that is amazing. I don't want to gloss over that with, with <laughs> this question, but you said something amazing there that I think really sets up what we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what a therapist does. Mm -hmm. I've never been to one. Right. I've never heard of this. Mm -hmm. And the last two and a half years, three years of the pandemic, and even the last 10 years in general thinking, this idea of well-being, mm -hmm. how do you feel? Right. Is not a, a joke. It's not a, it's not a bumper sticker. It's something we really need to focus on. And how is that being played out? This, this culture of well-being as it pertains to school safety. Well, I think that for me, I have realized in the past three years how our school in particularly, I believe, was light years ahead of where we needed to be in terms of counseling. Um, our school had always had the belief system that we had to focus, we had to make sure our students were physically safe first. Then we had to address any any of their mental well-being or mental health concerns secondly. And then we educated them. And so because we had that belief system in place, there was always an open door opportunity for students to see a counselor. There was never uh, just a certain window of time that we could meet with students. We were not given tasks to accomplish that were more administrative uh, duties. Um, I don't currently uh, makes student schedules. I'm not, I don't do testing at our school. Our focus has always been primarily on addressing student and family needs. And so that gave me a lot of flexibility to be able to meet with and talk to students as they either asked to see me or were referred to me by either a staff member or a parent. And so when the pandemic happened, we looked for creative ways to try to connect with our students. I did a lot of that through email because fortunately mm. our school it ha uh, has a one-to-one a -one student ratio for laptops. Okay. So we knew that all of our students could be reached. And it was, um, in some ways, I think that was kind of fun for them to get emails from me. Uh, it was a little bit like a pen pal, except for not sure, sure. mail. But it was a way for us as a staff. And that was something that our principal, Robin Miller, um, directed us to do. Is she every day wanted us to reach out to at least five students. And so school-wide, we did that, just so the kids wow. would 
wasn't about an assignment. It wasn't about, you know, are you, are you watching your videos and doing your, your um, <laughs> homework online? Right, right. About, how are you? You know, how's your family? What are you doing in the time that you're home? Is there anything you need from us? And I think that that helped us stay as connected as possible to our students during that time without having the physical connection. And so sure. coming back yeah. to school, it was a little bit different and it did take the students a little bit of time uh, to, to reacclimate. We had students who had moved to our school from elementary school, transitioning into middle school and their first year they were at home uh, for the right. pandemic. And so we, we, we've learned that there were some things that we wish we could have done a little bit more differently, you know, differently to help them transition a little better into that. But of course there's all, you know, hindsight is always 2020, but, right, right. Um, but we've I all learned a lot of things that we could have done better. <laughs> Yes, right, absolutely. right. But I definitely think there's been an influx in requests for counseling by students and by their family members since the pandemic happened. Uh, we definitely have seen that. And I'm grateful, again, that we have the flexibility to accommodate as many as we possibly can in the seven to eight hours that we're here each day. Well, that, that's fascinating that you 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 as an organization and a school took the idea, like, we'll just email people. Like, mm-hmm. we're all, you know, kids don't want to see you face-to-face and, and <laughs> you know, being here being buried in their phone, you know, ha, ha, mm-hmm. ha, we can at least go, hey, how you doing? Which right. we would do to each other as adults anyway. Right. We would text each other and go, hey, man, how you doing? Mm-hmm. And we would have a whole conversation. It's like right. nothing. And, and just looking at them, these students as 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 people seems to be. Uh, and reminding them that we cared about their lives outside of school. It wasn't mm. just, you know, our focus being on academics and, and our job here. It was about we care about you as as our students, as people. And we want to know how you're doing. And some of their responses were so much fun to get um, because some of them would tell you about their everything that was going on in their lives or <laughs> what happened that day. And, and others would just say, I'm doing great. You know, have a good have a good summer. You know, they wouldn't really respond very much, but they knew that somebody thought of them and reached mm. out. And that was the part that um, that we we found to be uh, the most successful and the biggest uh, blessing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it makes total sense when you hear it. But I, I you know, I want to go back to your book because I'm sure that there is some dovetailing there of mm-hmm. of what your experiences was. And again, you know, you have the book, The, the School Shooting That Never Happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, walk us again through this, this scenario. W- what was this, this event that, you know, mm-hmm. was really pivotal in your and the school's lives? And of course, the young man. Right. Well, I think I have to, in order to tell that story, I have to tell just a little bit of back history. And that is that my first year here at Sycamore was the year that the school shooting happened at Columbine uh, in a suburb right outside of Littleton. And for Mm -hmm. reasons I didn't quite understand at the time, I became very interested in reading about the minds of violent teenage boys who had committed crimes of this nature on school campuses. So I started reading everything that I could find written by psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health professionals. Um, law enforcement and and people directly, um, I guess, connected to these acts. I didn't want to read tabloid information. I wanted it to be research-based. And so for 10 years, from 1999 to 2009, I collected all this information. I wrote a training that I did for the 18 school counselors in my county that was called Recognizing Red Flags, an Educator's Role in Preventing School Violence. And it was an in-depth psychological analysis of 32 school shooters. 
Oh, wow. So I, I believe that God prepared me for 18 years for that one day. Mm. So um, that that morning, that, so because of my, my past um, training and reading and research and just conferences I'd attended and all of that, um, it was important for me always to try to recognize kids in crisis. So I do a lot of um, guidance lessons along with our other school counselor at the beginning of the year on um, letting us know if you're concerned about someone, letting us know if you're concerned about yourself. You're not going to be in trouble. They're not going to be in trouble. We just want to help and we can. You have to trust mm, yeah. us. And so what happened to me is this young man um, who was involved in our incident actually had a friend who was worried about him. And he came mm. to me the week before and he said, Miss Hudgens, I have this friend I'm concerned about. I really think that you need to talk to him. And um, he was concerned at first that his friend would be angry with him for talking to me. But I sure. assured him, I will not tell your friend that you're the one who came. Um, I, I will bring him down here under the guise that I need to look at his math grade with him, which was <laughs> probably true. Most middle yeah. schoolers can afford to have those things evaluated. Yeah. And so I used that as the reasoning to bring that young man in the Friday before. And this incident happened the following Wednesday. So the Friday before I met with him um, for about 45 minutes, which in school counseling is an extremely long amount of time. We are more brief counselors. Okay. Um, okay. And, and so, but that day he obviously needed to talk. And so uh, he did that. So the next week when, when everything swirled together in what would be the perfect storm for him, this is where he came. You know, he came oh, back right. to the counseling department. He came back to uh, the person that listened to him the week before. And, um, you know, I, I think that his saying, you're the, I thought you were the only person who could talk me out of this will probably be the greatest compliment of my life. Um, mm. When I think about that, I know that um, God had a plan and he brought mm. him here. Uh, yeah. Nobody can convince me otherwise because <laughs> I spent so many years preparing for something when it was almost like I was Noah. You know, I'm building an ark and people are saying oh, it's never rained. Um, <laughs> but then it did rain. Right. Yeah. And this kid knew where the ark was. And so sure. I, I was grateful for that. So when he came to me that morning, uh, like I said before, it was a Wednesday morning um, and he came in and, and um, he had planned to come and meet with me later in the day. But but then went back to class and felt like he couldn't wait. And so came down about eight o'clock, a little bit after eight o'clock. And we started talking and a couple minutes into the conversation, I realized something was wrong, mostly from the reaction my body had. Uh, I was training to run my first marathon at the time. And I noticed that my heart rate had accelerated and my pulse was pounding in my ears. And I remember thinking, my heart doesn't beat like this when I when I run. Oh, so wow. I knew something was wrong. I felt like somebody took a cup of something and warm and poured it on top of my head and it was running down my body. And I remember telling myself, don't faint. Oh, wow. Um, so oh, my gosh. All of, the, all of those things for me were indicators something was not right. Um, he unzipped his jacket and he reached inside and he kind of started tapping on something. And um, I just thought he has a gun. Mm. And I remember oh, something rising up in me. Uh, it's the only way I can describe it. And I remember thinking, not my school. Yeah, my absolutely. School. Yeah. Um, and, and I learned later from one of the Medal of Honor recipients that fear is not a weakness. Fear is a tool. And let <laughs> me tell you, when you combine a healthy dose of fear with a healthy dose of anger, you get this protective agent that mm, I absolutely. cannot describe in words. Um, but I was not going to let him leave this room if I could help it. But 
The other part of this piece was that I knew from all these years of research that there was the possibility if he were homicidal um, in this situation, in this setting, at this age, that there's a possibility that he might also be suicidal. So I am am trying to think through all the options that I have in order not just to protect myself and our staff and our students, but to protect him. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted him to survive this and I wanted him to have a second chance. And the whole time this is all going on, I am praying in my head, Lord, just give me the words, help me know what to do. Um, but when I when I realized he was tapping on something and, and I was angry, I knew I was going to kind of have to take the bait. And I said, you know, what are you tapping on? Mm-hmm. And he told me it was a pencil box. And I knew he was lying, but I let that go. We talked for a little bit longer. And then he told me he had something to tell me. And he said, I bet this is something nobody's ever told you before. And I said, I don't know. I, um, I've talked to a lot of kids about a lot of things. And he said, well, I bet nobody's ever told you they had a loaded gun before. And I just said the first thing that came to my head, I said, no, honey, they haven't. um, But you're probably not the first person to have one. And he unzipped his jacket the rest of the way. And he pulled out what I would later learn to be um, a 45 millimeter handgun. He laid it on the desk here in front of me. Um, He reached into an exterior pocket of his jacket and pulled out another magazine of ammunition. And he stood beside the gun. And then beside that, he laid out um, what was akin to like an ankle holster type thing that would hold the ammunition. And so the second that he said that, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seated right here. He was right across the desk from me. So I kind of pushed back from my desk. I stood up a little bit. I leaned over and I put my hands out and I said, honey, why don't you let me take this and then we'll talk about what's going on. And when he said that, when I said that, he yanked it all away and he shoved the ammunition in his pocket and he held the gun in his left hand pointed at the floor. So I remember in all these years of training, I had read a lot about hostage negotiations and I knew that the goal in those situations was to lower the emotions Mm -hmm. of the person. So I put my hands up a little bit. I walked around the edge of my desk. I have a chair that still sits at the end of my desk and I walked around that and I got down on my knees um, beside him. I knew it was important that I maintain a subservient position um, because I wanted him to feel as if I was relinquishing any and all power to him. I put my left hand on his right shoulder and I reached over with my right hand and interlaced the fingers of my right hand with his right hand. And I said, why don't we talk about what's going on? Um, I wasn't afraid of the firearm. I live in the South. I've had a license to carry a handgun since I was 21. Not that I do that a lot, but that's just something kind of common for this area. Uh But I was concerned about what he could do with that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. He lost all hope. And so my goal was to try to instill hope in him, to try to figure out what the next steps would be and to allow always um, for for God to control that and to help me with that. We talked for a long time. Um, The news reports say it was 45 minutes. It was 90 minutes. I know that because classes changed twice in the hallway right outside of our door here. Um, I was terrified during those moments. I knew we would only have seven minutes and um, I would try to engage him in conversation. Sometimes he was very upbeat and positive. Other times he was crying and sad. Other times he was angry. And those times were, were obviously the most terrifying for me. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, I looked at him and said, I'm not, honey, I'm not sure what it is, but I know that God has a plan for your life. And he kind of stiffened and he looked down at me and he said, Miss Hudgens, do you believe in God? And I remember thinking, oh, why did I say that? Like my heart mm, sank right. in my stomach and I thought, oh, Molly. Um, 
But then I just thought, I can't, I can't. If this is it for me, I can't deny the Lord. So I, I looked at him and I said, well, honey, I do, but I feel like you don't. Is there a reason that you don't? And he told me that he'd asked for help many times and he felt like nobody had ever helped him. And I said, well, what do you think this is? I said, you know, maybe, maybe God hasn't been telling you no all along. Maybe he's just felt, been telling you to wait. And I said, I promise you two things. Um, we're, I'm not going to leave you and we're going to figure out what to do. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, you know, he, he had mentioned God. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I made a decision to do what I thought was the only option that I had. And I said to him, uh, maybe we'll pray about this for some kind of direction. Would you, would you be okay if we did that? And he said, yes, ma'am, I think that would be okay. And needless to say, I prayed the most heartfelt prayer of my life. You talk <laughs> yeah. about, you talk about pounding <laughs> the throne of grace. Listen, I have stood on holy ground right where I am right now. And I know that. Um, and so during that prayer, um, uh, I felt as if he relaxed. Um, I kept my eyes open. I was afraid to close them. We both cried the whole time. And uh, when the prayer was over, um, I had been praying for an opening and he had noticed um, some of the race medals that I had hanging around the top of my office and asked me about running. And I told him, well, you know, I ran, I'm training for that marathon. I told you guys about in class and, and I um, ran 10 miles this morning. And I said, you know, that really wreaks havoc on the knees. And he wanted me to go back to my desk to be more comfortable. And I just felt like that, that this was it. And I just said, honey, I, I can't do that no matter how much my knees hurt until you, until you give me that gun. And mm -hmm. he said, I, I think I want to give it to you, which I had asked for it many times, but mm -hmm. each time he felt that he could not give it to me. Um, he believed that, that if he didn't come to school and harm people, something was going to happen to his family. So I knew that I was dealing with a mental health crisis throughout mm -hmm. this process. This was not a kid who was heck bent on revenge. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was a kid who was really in crisis. And so um, when I leaned over, I told him, I said, well, why don't you let me take the gun and then you won't have to give it to me. And he said, okay. And he put the safety on. And so when I leaned over to take it, he just put both arms around me and I hugged him. I remember just holding him and just hearing, just hold him like he's yours, Molly. And I remember saying to him how much I loved him, how proud of him I was. Um, I remember saying, which right's never easy, but it's still right. You've done the right thing. <laughs> yeah. And the whole time I'm thinking, I am ho holding what I now know to be a fully loaded gun because it's so heavy in a public school. I, I couldn't mm -hmm. believe it. It was like having fire and gasoline. You know, you, you just, I couldn't believe it. And um, so uh, the story continued with the fact that I was able to, after getting his permission to send a text message to try to contact our SRO. And um, eventually that message went through. There were several attempts at communication. That's just, we, we work in an older building that was built in the seventies and mm, just yeah. ceilings and very poor cell connection. But, but finally the officer was able to come to my office and conducted just a gracious interview with the young man who told the officer the same information he had told me. Um, we were able to take him out of the school without anyone realizing what had happened. And to be very honest with you, I never really thought anybody would know. But the next day, our sheriff held a press conference and he um, he named me and he told us part of the story I just told you. And he said um, the young man told us he went to Miss Hudgens because he thought she was the only one who could talk him out of it. And I think that resonated with people. And we were then inundated, obviously, with media and news requests from all over the world. But what I knew from 18 years of research was that 
the sooner that we could get our school's name and our community off of the media platforms, the safer we would all be. Mm, so I refused all television, um, radio, newspaper interviews. I did not do any um, for almost six months. And when I did, it was about the citizen's honor. And so um, this story obviously is one that is um, sacred to me. I feel a great responsibility to carry it in a dignified manner with great respect for um, this young man and for the, the right decision that he made. I am so proud of him. I still pray every day for him. That it, And because we did not get the media involved and we did not participate in interviews, and that was no one, no one in our school, none of our staff, none of our parents, none of our students. Because of that, we were able to maintain the privacy of his name from ever being published. Mm -hmm. So I'm very proud to tell you that he has gotten a second chance. Oh, well, I, I, you know, listening to this story, and I think everyone listening to the story is going to have to take a moment and just be thankful and give thanks to anything and everything they can, because this is a story that listening to it and you know, there are hosts of things that could have gone wrong. This is where, you know, split decisions where, you know, you can bring in religion, psychology, right. gut feeling, right. fight or flight, animal instinct, everything you've talked about. Your family brings, history, your life experience. Right. You know, I, you know, it, you know, we can talk about gun. We're not going to talk <laughs> about guns, but this is a gun. What does right. that mean? There are so many right. things that. So many pieces. You're right. That I think brings us to this 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 big greater topic of what do school counselors have to now focus on right when it comes to the well-being of a student what are the things that we need to be focusing on and you mentioned um he felt that he could not talk to anyone mm -hmm. he felt that you know, you, you had said that you were actually contacting people, that there was time more than the five-minute check-in. Hey, we can take 45 minutes and, mm -hmm. and really talk about counseling. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen from this now and in your experience mm -hmm. that school staff and teachers can start thinking about and, and practicing on when it comes to mental health and well-being? Well, I think that Sadly, in our country, there's been there's been so much focus placed on test scores and achievement and graduation rates. And obviously, those things are important. And I don't mean to take away from that at all. But I do think that if we want to educate kids, if we really want them to learn, we have to make sure their needs are being met. And sometimes those are not being met at home. And when they're not, we have to figure out how to parent them from school in the mm -hmm. very short amount of time that we have here. And what I have learned the most from kids in, in 23 years is that they really need someone to listen to them. And sometimes you may be that coach or that PE teacher, or you might even be the band director and a kid may come to you and just, it's almost like they need to get something off their chest. And, and of course, I, I've had a lot of years to practice recognizing that, but it's, it's just that they may need someone to listen. And if, if after having heard them, you realize, hey, this is kind of above my level of expertise or this is over my head, I'm not sure what to do, then you need to know the person in your school that is your touch point for that. You know, here we are very blessed to have a counseling team. There are only two of us for about 650 students. 
but we also have a wonderful administrative team. So together there are seven of us, which includes our SRO. We have a separate crisis team. And so in the event that a teacher feels as if they have a concern about a student, be it something the student said or just a behavior they exhibited that the professional recognizes being uncommon or unusual behavior, they know that they can come to us. They can let, and we ask that they let both of the counselors know. Sometimes we meet with the students together. Um, sometimes we meet individually. Sometimes we involve one of our administrators or our SRO because sometimes the kids need to understand that law enforcement is not here just for when they're in trouble. They're here to offer right. them support and give them direction too about um, what what could happen in the future if, if, if certain, you know, if they exhibited certain behaviors. Um, especially beyond the age of 18. And so I feel like we're very blessed in having that type of, of concept. So first and foremost, not just the counselors, but the staff need to know where to go next when they mm. have a concern. What is the process for that in their school or in their school district? And so for us, we use our professional development time, part of that time in the week before school starts to go over our crisis plan and to talk about the best way for staff to interact with us. And we, we try to be very welcoming. They have our cell numbers. They can text us. They can call us. They can email us. Um, they can page us over the intercom. We all have walkie talkies. You know, we try to make it so that there's no possible way that someone can't contact us if they need to. So for me, when you ask the question about what do we do now with our kids and how to how to recognize that well-being, I believe honestly that every kid who needs help is going to present with that somehow. It may be verbal, it may be written, it may be on a social media platform, it may be to a friend, it may be to a a parent or an adult of some sort of coach, but I believe that that's why it's important that we train everyone and how to recognize some, and it's very simply, if you see something going on that seems like it might not be right, and you feel in your gut like that just kind of bothers you, tell someone, tell someone who can do something. Mm -hmm. um, and so, right, because like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt because okay. you're, you're really talking about, you know, observing, which, mm -hmm. which seems so simple. Right. But in a in a day of teaching, in a day of working with kids, you're seeing, you know, if you've got 25, 30 to a classroom, six, six periods mm -hmm. a day, that's a lot mm -hmm. of kids. That's a it lot is. of things to observe, let alone the actual teaching aspect of your day. Um, and these lower level concerns are these mm -hmm. small things that, you know, may not always be recognizable. Right. Um, how, how are you teaching them and how are you helping the faculty to to recognize and to you know catalog some of this these observations well for one thing we try to make ourselves very available to them and also very open to them we counsel a lot of staff too mm. um, so it's important it's when people talk about the importance of relationships that seems to be such a buzzword in our society right now because but for me you can never have a relationship with someone unless it is genuine. And kids are Absolutely, like dogs. Yeah. They can sniff that out. They know if you're not real. <laughs> they know if yeah. You're, yeah, they know if you're trying to pretend to be something you're not. Yeah. And so if you as a teacher really have those connections with your students, you really make an effort to to get to know them, then they're going to come to you if there's if there's a problem. But we also have put some things in place, like in the mornings, when our kids come off the bus, they are greeted at the front doors by both the counselors, the SRO, and usually one of our principals. 
Mm. Um, so our kids, as they're coming in, we are all watching. And if there is a child who gets off the bus who's crying and already upset, guess what I know? If I can take that child and try to say, they, maybe they've just had a bad morning, you know, gotten a fight with their brother on sure, the bus, absolutely. something happened. Yeah. If we can intervene early and help get their day off to a positive start, then two things have happened. One, they feel better, which is always my goal when they leave here. I want them to feel better than they did when they came in. But secondly, it, it's helped them refocus and helped us make another connection with that child that we might not have had otherwise. Right. And that's, it's, it's, it's so interesting when you say this. And I think as a grown adults mm-hmm. who work in a company are, are often like, well, we have our morning meeting. We have mm-hmm. our weekly check-in. We have our one-on-ones. We have all of these things that are required and have the air of corporate speak. But really mm-hmm. oftentimes is a, hey, it's a one-on-one. I want to complain and moan and talk about mm-hmm. stuff. And, <laughs> you know, it's a safe space. You can complain. We forget that Kids need that as much, if not more, than we do. They do. And as much as you can observe them in their natural environment, which is when they are not in a classroom, like when they're at lunch, when they're on fields of play, when they're transitioning between classes, when they're um, boarding the bus or, or getting off, as much as you can watch those things, you start to pick up on if some kids are being isolated or if they can't seem um, to socialize the way that a child would normally at this age. And so that's when you have opportunities to pull them in and talk to them. And, and I have been surprised so many times by how many kids just need to have a place to express something. And it may take them a long time. Sometimes I have to sit quietly and they sit quietly because they are trying to figure out how to say what they are feeling or what they or what they mean. Um, they're often worried about how that's going to be perceived by an adult. And so mm, it's really yeah. important to me that they, and I say to them many times, look, honey, whatever's going on, there is no judgment here. I have never walked in your shoes. You, you know, you share with me what's going on and, and I'll, we'll figure out some options for what for what for you to do next. And I always tell them, we're going to figure out something. There is, there is, we may have to try a thousand things like, you know, um, like uh, people have done in the past who are trying to create uh, ways to solve other problems. You know, sometimes when Edison tried to invent the light bulb, he he figured out a thousand ways it didn't work. You know, we may figure out a thousand things that don't work. When we get to a thousand and one, it's going to work. And I think instilling hope in kids is it in people is what I believe is the piece that we're missing. When we look at all of the the mass attacks that we're having across our country right now that are not obviously happening just in schools, when we look at that, the one commonality amongst all of them is that those people have lost hope. Mm -hmm. They don't feel as if they have anything else to go on for. Um, And so my goal is to find the kids who are struggling, figure out how to give them hope, that is long-term. We focus on their gifts and talents, their strengths. We figure out what their weaknesses are. And I remind them, hey, I'm terrible in math. I'm never going to have a job in math. And that's okay. You know, we're <laughs> going to figure out your weaknesses and make sure you never have to have a job right. in that either. You right. Know, so right. It's, it's the piece of them really looking at you and knowing, you know, somebody believes that I can do something. Somebody believes that I'm a good kid. Um, somebody has hope for me. And that makes it very individual and very special. And that is the piece that so many of them are needing, not just children, but adults as well. 
Mm. And, and, and that brings up kind of a, a shift in that you're building this culture of school safety mm-hmm. and you're building a, a culture around everybody involved. And some people will look at what you're saying uh, and go, well, isn't that what's already supposed to be happening? Mm-hmm. Isn't that what counselors and teachers do every day? And, and, you know, on the professional side, the answer is yes, but we've got a lot <laughs> of other things to do. So, you know, you can't just dump this and, and expect it to be fixed. Mm-hmm. But what you're doing requires a few extra steps or some more communication amongst everybody. What are some of those steps that people in education who may not be as lucky as you are now to have mm-hmm. this network and this culture, what are some things they can start, at, even at the base level, to to get to that point of, hey, let's move into this open communication, this positive culture mm-hmm. to help our kids? Well, one of the things that we try to do is build positive rapports with our families ahead of time. Um, our principal has said many times, I want you to make positive phone calls before you ever make a negative one. So we know that mm-hmm. if we can make a connection with the family and let them know, hey, we're so excited your kid is here. He's a fifth grader and we don't know him yet, but we're going to. And we're going to know you. And we're probably going to know the name of your dog. <laughs> um, right. If we can create those ahead of time, a lot of times parents will then share with us when they have concerns. They feel like there's someone here in our school that really cares about their child. And when they are more forthcoming about how they're seeing their child interact and behave and respond at home, and we can see if we're having similar issues here, we can be on the same page and try to direct them toward whatever intervention is is needed. And sometimes it it might not be a a huge thing. You know, we had a student who was struggling and we assigned him a mentor, one of our um, our football coaches, and he helped him change the marquee sign. And that kid, his attendance was better because he knew he was going to get to come in and change the sign and he liked meeting with the coach. <laughs> and, and, that, and it really, it didn't take them very long to do that, but it gave him a chance to have some conversations. And he over time opened up to that coach in ways that he wouldn't have. So I encourage greatly mentor programs in schools and people sometimes say, we don't have a lot of time to do that. And I completely get that. Sometimes it's just a two minute, you know, you catch them in the hallway because you know they're coming, but they think, you know, they're not planning on seeing you. And you go, <laughs> sure. hey, I've been looking for you. How's your day going? Yeah. You, know, you give them that little piece of, wow, somebody was thinking about me today. So Connecting with the families is, is a huge piece of this. Um, and when you're, especially when you get into the middle and the high and the secondary levels, when teachers have so many students, that can seem overwhelming. And, and, you know, if, if you went in and told a teacher, Hey, you're going to have to call all 150 of your families before school starts, that would be a lot. But we have a teacher who sends postcards. She sends a card to every every kid. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, hey, I can't wait to hear my class. You know, here's a picture of my family or my horse or, yeah. or whatever. So sometimes I think it is really more about the the giving a little bit of yourself first. Okay. okay. And realizing that they hopefully can embrace that and give back to you. I find that they do. I leave here every day with my cup running over. So <laughs> I find that they do. <laughs> well, I mean, that that is tremendous advice. And 
And, and again, it seems so simple, but it's something, mm-hmm. I guess, well, it's obvious we, we often forget. And, and, and these last few years and, and what's going on is really making us more aware that mm-hmm. mental health and well-being is always an issue. Right. And should always be seen not as a negative. It should be mm-hmm. seen as a positive. We, like you said, I'm reaching out. I'm sharing with you. We're, hey, mm-hmm. we're going to spend all day together. We right. should like each other for two <laughs> minutes a day. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> should be and a happy know, time. We have a we share the love because there's some days that I have little Johnny and I can't love him today. He is mm. being a terror in my classroom. <laughs> so I'm going to march him down to, you know, Miss Smith and I'm going to say, I need you to love Johnny today. And she's going to somebody here out of 80 people on staff can love whatever the kid's life is like that day. And Mm. so sometimes it's take it's it's as an adult saying, I'm not equipped to deal with this right now, but there's there's got to be somebody else in our school right now who can work with this child and meet them where they are. Because we remind them all the time, they're kids. They're going to make mistakes. And most of the time when they are extremely angry, it is really not at you. It may be directed at you, but they're really angry about a multitude of things. And and most of us have forgotten middle school. It's easy to forget that right. age because yep. um, we'd like to. Anyway. <laughs> Nobody um, likes middle school. We all want to get past awkward, it. <laughs> very different. And so just just re- reminding people sometimes of what that experience was like for them also gives them a piece of, um, of hey, I think I can go a little bit further with that kid today, or I'm going to think of a different route to try. And it's not perfect. You know, there are days we still leave here shaking our heads going, what did we miss today with that kid? Like, what can we do with him? And it does take brainstorming sessions sometimes and obviously involving outside entities if we need to, to try to find what their needs are. But I, you know, I still go to the high school if if that if a student is in high school and they're like, I really need to talk to Miss Hudgens, they will call me and I go next door for that. And the kids have, by my own choice, the kids have access to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And I tell them that's for the rest of your life. If you need me, and, and they've never taken advantage of that. There's very few times they've ever contacted me really outside of school. But mm. when they do, Praise, praise God that they're doing that, that they're yeah, reaching absolutely. out. Absolutely, yeah. Um, better to reach out than to not. Right, right. Well, uh, you know, Molly, you know, you. I'm going to use it. So you're a hero. Thank you so much. Uh, and and really, you've given. I think all of us parents, educators, uh, people surrounding the world of you know, even if you're at a school and you're not necessarily an educator, your mm-hmm. staff, that you know, there's a lot to be thinking about. That you know, kids. And ourselves need to be thinking about our well-being and our safety and mm-hmm. really just, you know, being out to help each other. Uh, Molly Hudgens, you are tremendous. And I hope everyone picks up your book, Saving Sycamore, the school shooting that never happened. And um, what's the best way to reach you so that if anybody has some ideas or wants to kind of brainstorm what they can do to help their own school? Well, you can always email me. My email, I have my school email address um, is or the one that I guess most people contact is molly.hudgens at ccstn.org. Um, I can also be reached through mollyhudgens.com. Um, and I, I hope that if people have ideas of things they've tried at their schools that have been helpful with their students, I love to have new ideas to take back to our staff for ways for us to connect or or try something different when we do feel like our bag of tools may be emptied on a certain situation. But 
um, more than anything, I want to encourage people to remember that you are called for a purpose. You are called to do something um, probably far greater than you ever imagined you would be capable of doing. And when a situation arises that you least expect, you can rise to the occasion and do what it is that you're called to do. So if you're in a, a position where you, you don't feel like you're helping people or you're you're um, not sure that you're where you're supposed to be. There's nothing wrong with changing jobs or looking for that because I can tell you that I know my purpose is to be here at this school. And even though I have these wonderful opportunities to, to, to do podcasts and to speak to different audiences across the country, I know that really this is where my heart is. This is my passion. This is my place. And so I just want to encourage everyone who hears this to know that keep searching for what it is that you're supposed to do. And I believe it will come to you. You know, it came to me the day before my 40th birthday, right here in this room, when I realized that um, I'd been called as, as Mr. Woody Williams, our one of our Medal of Honor recipients from World War II who just passed away this week. The cause is greater than I. And so keep keep championing for kids. I tell people all the time, go be some kid's hero. It doesn't have to be every kid. It can just be one. But um, I appreciate all of our educators across the country and what they've done, especially the past few years, to show the teachers are some of the smartest people in the world. I'm not going to add anything to that because that's perfect. <laughs> because I don't want I don't want to take away from that. Uh, perfect, excellent, Molly, tremendous. 